Hello and welcome to our new podcast, Downtown Drash. My name is Dr. Michal Bitton and I'm the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my podcast co-host and colleague, Rabbi Joe Wolfson, JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center at NYU. Today, we are recording some thoughts on the double Torah portion of Tazria and Metzorah. We will explore some questions that come up from the Torah's treatment of Nida, investigate the relevancy of Tzarat for our, for our own times in quarantine, and offer some thoughts relevant to Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, which falls out this week. So, um, Rabbi Joe, still in quarantine? Still in quarantine, yes, as we all are, and it's late at night, after both of us have dealt with plenty of tantrums today, but excited for this. Uh, yes, yes, next time we should start by counting uh, how many tantrums we each uh, dealt with. But um, so, so we have two parashiyot coming up. So what are, what are some of the main things that come up in Tazria and Metzorah? So Tazria and Metzorah, when they are paired with one another, as they are this year, are one of the longest Torah readings that we have. However, their themes are relatively um, concise. The parasha begins with childbirth. A woman gives birth to a boy or a girl. We are told of the amount of time of Tumah, the amount of time of impurity that comes with that. We are told about Brit Milah, the mitzvah, the commandment of circumcision for a baby boy. From that point on, the parasha moves to describing Tzarat. Tzarat hard to give it an official English translation. It's often called leprosy, which I think is pretty inexact. Some form of biblical illness. And actually, Tazria and Mitzorah have two different sorts of Tzarat. The first one, which appears and really takes up almost the totality of Parshat Tazria, is about Tzarat of the skin, a disease of the skin what it looks like. Can you tell if it is Tzarat or if it isn't? How is it treated? What comes about on account of it? How does one leave the status of having Tzarat? The second type of Tzarat, which appears in Parshat Mitzorah, is not the Tzarat of persons, but actually the Tzarat of houses. Houses themselves can contract Tzarat. And Parshat Metzorah describes this process and the analysis of it, and again, the process of how to remove the Tzarat and return to a healthier condition. So, so Rabbi Joe, I, I find it really interesting uh, when asking you to talk about the themes in this Parashat that you, you really focused a lot on, on Tzarat, uh, which makes sense, which take up many, many psukim and verses in the Parashat. And when I was going through some of my books of different uh, commentators who try to offer uh, philosophical reflections and ideas on the parashiyot, they also um, focus a lot on Tzarat. The interesting thing that I want to raise, though, is that if we read this parashiyot, Tzarat is actually something that is not relevant in terms of the way we practice our Jewish lives today. And there are a whole set of laws around Nida that actually structure um, Jewish observant life today 
and that are in this parashiot, and that I believe, from at least my cursory reading of the books I have in my bookshelf, uh, aren't always discussed um, in terms of the ideas underneath them and what they're supposed to teach us. So you're referring to, I'm pretty sure, Nida. Nida, which is certainly one of the major, major pillars of observant Jewish life. Let, let, let's, let's talk about that, Michal. Why is it that we don't talk about it when we're teaching Palsha? Why is it not in your books? So let, let, let's start by, by defining what, what, is, what is Nida, okay? So let's give a very technical definition. So I think we can say that Nida, both in the Torah and in its later legal development, refers to the state of impurity triggered by menstruation and other forms of uterine bleeding. So Nidai is a, is a state of impurity that women experience. And that when you actually try to study the halacha, the Jewish law, the contemporary Jewish law around it, it regulates uh, the, the lives of, uh, of couples and relationships in terms of when they're allowed to be together physically and when they're supposed to separate from each other. Uh, and at the end of a period of Nida, a woman is uh, supposed to immerse in the mikveh uh, before she can be uh, pure again and be able to be together uh, with, with her husband. So, so just, from, just from saying that description, <laughs> we can already begin to tease out why it might not be in the parasha books uh, that I have at home. Uh, it deals with things that are, you know, both intimate and also kind of like um, things that are that are private, whether it's the, the, the sex lives of, of couples that, you know, in the Torah and in Jewish tradition, there's such a strong emphasis in modesty and in like keeping things intimate that are supposed to stay intimate. Um, so I think that that's one reason why we don't like to talk about Nida. But I would also say um, it, it feels really, really foreign. I mean, in, in, in 2020, when we have uh, such different notions around gender, around women, around, you know, physical, our bodies and what they're supposed to do. Uh, Autonomy. Autonomy, yeah, all of these things. Uh, now that we actually understand the process of 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 all of these things, uh, it feels uh, there's something that feels almost like like weird about this. Like, are we still really keeping these laws that are so different and counterintuitive with our modern way of being in the world? And perhaps we could almost say that there are actually different reasons why people don't speak about it. My guess, Michal is that you have a range of different Pausha books. I'd love to know which ones they are. You might have uh, the Feldheim series, you might have Hartman Chidushim, and my guess is that they say different things. Now, it could well be that both of these, genre, both of these uh, genres do not uh, discuss Nida, and perhaps maybe for different reasons. I think coming from the right, if we can call it that, there is a sort of sense of embarrassment that Judaism is not supposed to talk about sex and talk about intimacy, or at least not in a public sense. Uh, tzniyut is understood to mean privacy, and things that are to do with tzniyut are discussed in private. Um, what do you think it is coming from the left, if we can use that phrase? Uh, I think from the left, and I tried hinting to this before, I think if you're a liberal, you identify as a liberal um, man or woman who's also observant, and you keep these laws, then you're almost embarrassed, right? I was reading um, a, a book by Blue Greenberg, who was describing how she had this encounter with this 
friend of hers who was an observant and who saw her come home one day with her hair wet and she was like, what? The babysitter, right? I, I, I'm not sure, but uh, might, might have been a friend. But, but, but her friend told her, what? You, you keep this like archaic? Um, some people would say, I'm not saying that I'm saying, but some people would say like misogynistic laws that treat women in X, Y, Z way and that actually interfere with the way that you're living your life with your husband. So, you know, there's something difficult for, for a liberal individual uh, who, who believes, like you said, in autonomy and um, maybe in feminism and, and, you know, in different ways of thinking about gender and relationships to, to, to uphold these laws that are so uh, intimate and intrusive and that really regulate your life. Um, I think that's, that's partially why. So what's lost when we don't talk about it, when we don't talk about it from the Pausha? Right. So I think a lot of things are lost in general that, that you know, Nida is like a little bit uh, kept in, 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 in private conversations. Uh, and one of the things that I uh, feel strongly about is to actually empower um, women specifically who are observing this mitzvah to actually be able to access the resources and knowledge they need and to ask the questions they need to and to have the proper uh, authorities to reach out to. But But I do think that specifically there is something lost when we don't explore Nida in the parasha or in the Bible, in the Torah. And let me just first um, explain what does it mean that we, only, that we don't experience it in the, in the parasha text. Uh, I, I would hazard to say, and I would love to hear if you agree or not, that for most individuals who are planning to observe uh, Nida, that their um, first in-depth encounter with this set of laws usually comes before they get married. Uh, and they usually come, uh, are taught in, in the sense of trying to figure out, so how do you practically keep Nida? What are the do's and the don'ts? Uh, and how do you structure your life? Like, is this a fair thing to say? We used to joke when I was in the Kolel Halakha and we were learning Nida, if we ever had any sort of like 18-year-olds taking up our time who we you know wanted them to go, we'd just open up Masechet uh, Nida and they'd go flying away to the other side of the Bet Midrash. It was a very useful dispersion method. But yes, this has uh, this has costs. That that that's uh, that's intriguing. Uh, but uh, right, so 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 that means that actually most people don't have uh, an in depth understanding of a of a practice that actually shapes their life in in a very significant way. I would say that most observant Jews today, Nida is one of the big three. Right, we talk about Kashrut, about Shabbat, about Nida. So it's one of the things that if you're observant, you're you're likely to keep in some way or another. And I do think that a lot of things are lost from not looking at the psukim in, in our parashiot, uh, Tazriya Metzara, and seeing how they talk about Nida. Um, and I want to actually just point out to two of them. Um, the thing is that today, if we talk about Nida and if we talk about ritual purity, then immediately your mind goes and makes certain associations. You think woman, you think purity, impurity. Uh, sexual lives with husband. And, and that's kind of like the only thing that, 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 that we put together when we're trying to think about purity in terms of our bodies today and how they function. But if you put those modern associations aside and you look at the Torah text, Nida is one of many, many intricate laws and practices that have to do with purity and impurity. What I mean to say by this is that in the Torah, it's not just women who are impure. It's women it's men because of many different things that happen in their day-to-day -day life. It's animals, it's food, right. it's buildings. Right, thank you. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a lot of things. We don't just associate women with purity and impurity. Um, and, and the second thing is that in the Torah, um, nida is not only, and impurity is not only about sexual relations. 
right? It's actually about, I, I would say that the main implication throughout the parashiyot relating to purity and impurity are about the human ability to approach the holy. So for me to be able to enter the tabernacle, the mishkan, the Bet HaMikdash, the temple, to be able to eat from certain sacred things, to be able to engage in a life of ritual purity, I need to be pure. And that's quite a fundamental insight that that can't always be done. That you cannot approach holiness whenever one wants, rather there is a cycle. Right, so there's all of these beautiful teachings in the Torah about purity, impurity, how to approach the holy, that go way beyond Nida. Nida is just one subsection within the much larger whole. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Not only is it just one subsection, but what makes it, um, you know, complicated is that it's the one subsection that has remained in existence in terms of our practice. In our post-temple Judaism world, Nida is the sole survivor of, of this. Exactly. And that, and that opens the door and augments and raises a lot of questions that have to do with critiques, uh, with feminist critiques or questions or questions relating to gender. And why is it that it's woman bodies that are being, uh, you know, thought of in terminology that have to do with purity and, purity and impurity uh, and interference in the intimate lives of couples and all of these things. Uh, so, so I'm saying there, there is actually a gap between the biblical uh, underpinnings to Nida and to ritual purity and impurity and the way we practice it today. And that gap um, makes us approach Nida in a way that I think misses uh, a lot of the original intention uh, behind the laws of purity and impurity. Hmm. And so would you go, would you then be able to sort of say from this that for a young couple or more particularly a young woman or not particularly young trying to wrap their head around Nida that there's actually something then to gain for their own personal understanding of this practice from approaching it through the Torah text. Well I think in general we all have a lot to gain from uh, learning about any of our alachic practices from like where they are in the Torah and how they developed, uh, you know, in the rabbinic tradition, all the way to contemporary halacha. But I think particularly here, learning the Torah text does open new portals uh, into trying to, to approach Nida and dealing with, uh, with questions around it. Uh, I'll just share one, for example. So, so a lot of uh, contemporary discourse around Nida really frames it as a way to achieve uh, marital harmony, right? So you've got text, uh, you know, they're pretty modern from the last two centuries, I would say, uh, that tend to speak of Nida as a way to like rejuvenate, you know, a marriage and, and, and provide a couple like a, a cycle of intimacy and separation and then coming back together. Uh, and, you know, for, for many couples that might work. And for many couples, uh, that might be a good thing to to help them as they they observe Nida. And for some women, it might feel, make them feel empowered. But, and I'm not the one saying this, you actually have research on anonymous questions, for example, post to the Nishmat website. You also find a lot of people who struggle with Nida, whether it's from a philosophical perspective, questions around gender, or even like the, the observance in itself. Uh, and for individuals who struggle with it to actually be able to go back to the Torah and say, well, you know, this is just one additional law that has to do with purity and impurity. And even if I don't find the meaning that some other people might find, uh, I'm going to, 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 to think about it and engage with it in the way that I might engage with, with Kashrut or with other, um, you know, ritual uh, commandments in the Torah. That's amazing. I think I've gained a huge amount from listening to you. Uh, 
reframe Nida through the context of the Pausha. And I guess what I'm really understanding from you is that you can't wait for the temple to be rebuilt and for a much larger, fuller version of Tuma and Tahara to return to all of our lives. Well, well, um, okay. So, so you know how they, <laughs> you know how they have all of this like funny videos and things like you know what happens if if like men were to give birth or if they had to, you know. Uh, uh, I, I, I've uh, done the Lamar's pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> the no, Lamar's no, but there's like process. a, but there's a whole philosophy that basically says if men had to go through certain experiences, it might. Yes. Mm-hmm. Change everything. Mm-hmm. So I think the question you're posing is a significant one. If we were to live in a world in which everybody had to go through purity and impurity and all of the opportunities and challenges uh, that are embedded in it, both men and women, um, what would our life look like? And I think it would look radically different. I think that probably brings us uh, to a nice juncture to begin our second topic for tonight. And this is one which is not in the parasha, but rather in the calendar. This week is Yom HaShoah. Yom HaShoah, the Jewish day of Holocaust remembrance, which is structured around the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, but has become the day on which Jewish communities around the world remember the terrible years of Nazism. And we wanted to spend a few minutes trying to think a little bit with Yom HaShoah. Does it Gemara, Michal, which I'd love to share with you. It seems to be a really sweet, almost childlike Gemara, but it's going to have an extremely adult significant point to make. This is the Gemara in Masechet Brachot, and the question that it's essentially asking is, what could you compare Jewish history to? What is Jewish history like? What is a mashal, a, a, a metaphor for it? And the Gemara says, and this is, if anyone's interested, it's in Masechet Brachot, Daf Yud Gimel, folio 13 of Tractate Brachot. Mashal adam of a person, who was walking along the way, and a wolf attacked him. And he was saved from the wolf. And everybody who this person met, he, they would tell about his, his interaction, his fight with the wolf, and that he was saved. After a while, he encounters a lion. And he's saved from the lion. And he tells everybody now, not about the wolf, but about the lion. And then a snake meets him, tries to bite him. And once again he's saved. He forgets about both of the previous encounters, the lion and the wolf. He goes along the way and he tells people about the snake. So too Israel. Their more recent travails and pains cause them to forget their earlier ones. What a Gemara. What do you think, Michal? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very powerful um, mashal. I'm, I'm starting to, to process it. Um, so, so basically, I'm just imagining somebody who's going through difficulties and catastrophes 
right? And here we're seeing it through attacks by different animals. But after each attack, like the, the new attack of the new animal makes you forget, right? The, the previous one. Yeah. There's a, there's a bandwidth limitation. A person in the mashal, but Am Yisrael, the Jewish people as a whole in the nimshal, we're not able to retain everything. We, 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 you know, perhaps it's a, an emotional element. We, we, we can't live with a, a constant awareness of all of the wild animals who have attacked us without history. We're only able to dwell on the most recent one. Yeah, and, and I'm actually, like, there's something really beautiful about the words here, that it's not only about memory, right? We talk about shachach, but we also, like, the, the act of remembering here is mesaper veolech. There's something about when a memory feels so visceral, right, so recent, so sharp, that it, it causes you to, to tell it to other people and to shape you as you, as you go about your life. That, 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 that's a beautiful reading. But what also seems to be under the skin of this Mitrash is a, a, fe- an, a feeling of, um, I, th- I think, a, a feeling of that there's a problem that we have forgotten these earlier times. That it, it might not be possible to remember them, but that, that, that there's something strange that they are forgotten. And, and what I find so powerful about this is that this Gemara was written, you know, at least, you know, probably about 1500 years ago, possibly further ago than that. And already 1500 years ago, long before there were words in the English language, such as inquisition or ghetto or blood libel, and certainly not Holocaust, long before all of those terrible words were introduced on account of anti-Semitism, nevertheless, Jews already felt like they were going to be forgetting things and that they were forgetting. So, so, so Rabbi Joe, I just want to, I want to ask you, because, you know, we talk about Yom HaShoah and the Holocaust, and, and there's so many, you know, things we can talk about and things that we dare not talk about. So why, why this mashal? What does this mean to you? Why is it talking to you so powerfully? I guess because you know, partly in my, in my role I have for a long time now, both as a student leader when I was an undergraduate and as, as a rabbi of a university community, I have the great zechut each year around Yom HaShoah. And for the most part, these events always include a wonderful presentation from somebody who lived through that terrible period. I certainly grew up with it. My own grandmother fled Germany as a young girl. She was a a formative influence on my life. But everybody knows that we are in really the very last years, probably the last decade, of being able to have access to the people who saw that world. And I guess the, the, the concern that's sitting on me, and which this Gemara seems to draw out, is what is Yom HaShoah going to look like 15 years from now, 20 years from now. We are not the people who met the lion of Nazism. How are we going to be able to talk about it? And perhaps, to use the Gemara further, will it simply recede into the wider history and memory of 
Jewish catastrophe over the years as the decades go on. Right, right. Although, although what the Gemara is saying, if I understand it correctly, it's not necessarily about the passage of time, right? And perhaps not having witnesses who saw a certain catastrophe or experienced it. It has to do with the accumulation of new and different catastrophes, right? With, with something new and so different, such a different animal, right? That comes to you that you, that you forget the, the, the previous one. Um, so, so in a sense, when we're trying to, to think about the past and the future, what this camera introduces is not only uh, that has to do with proximity to, to an episode, but with a completely uh, new, new reality, um, which, which brings back to a question that we've discussed before in the past um, about, about the Holocaust and whether we view it as something completely different in the tragic long history of, you know, catastrophes and persecution uh, against the Jewish people, um, or whether it's just another animal that just made us forget previous ones. And what's your sense of that question? Is the Holocaust something which breaks previous paradigms, or does it fit into them? Um, for me, it, it breaks them. For me, the Holocaust is something that breaks, uh, breaks different paradigms of thinking around Jewish, Jewish history. Uh, I would say, you know, we can parse it out because of different reasons, but, but there's something, um, there is such a deep anguish and almost desperation, not only about the, the you know, the, the human suffering, uh, you know, in the Holocaust, but, but really about the fact that this came about after emancipation. What I mean by this is that Jews, after a long, long, you know, centuries living in the diaspora and knowing that they weren't accepted in society. And then they're finally, right, finally accepted. Uh, and they kind of like taste what it could be to be a citizen of a country. You feel like you're welcomed. You feel like your Judaism is not something that's going to be held against you because you're not, you know, a, a Christian uh, in Germany. So so when you have this uh, this so much modernity and, and this illusion of progress and moving forward and, and a new era in Jewish history in which Jews are accepted. And then, and then you have the Holocaust. There's something there that just throws into question the, the, the whole possibility um, of, you know, of, of, of thriving uh, Jewish life amongst the nations. It's so hard to analyse it in a sort of a, a cool, removed sense. The Holocaust is different because I know about the Holocaust, because my family came from Germany, because my great-grandfather was the chief rabbi of a German city, because their house and apartment was trashed and destroyed on Kristallnacht. And I don't have that personal connection to any of the others, and I, any of the other events of Jewish history in quite the same way. Um, and so we can't step outside of ourselves, I don't really feel, and, and talk about things in such a cool and dispassionate way to say it is like it or it isn't like it. It's fundamentally different because it does, it does bear directly on my family. But yet having said that, and I say this as somebody who loves Jewish texts and lives with Jewish texts, there is something of tremendous comfort and power, I think, in feeling that after 1945 we are not starting with a blank page, but rather, and of course we wish it weren't so, rather we do have not only this history of suffering, 
but also this history of responding to suffering, this history of picking ourselves up again and saying, I'm not going to let this defeat me. And I think that actually the story of Judaism in the 20th century and into the 21st has been this astonishing response to the Shoah, perhaps not articulated always in a theological or philosophical way, but in a practical way. The fact that we are making this podcast, the fact that we both of us uh, you know, have the great privilege to, to help lead young, flourishing communities is in a sense a statement that the Shoah is not different from the rest of Jewish history, in that just as the rest of Jewish of, of those who have tried to kill us down the generations have not broken us, so too the Shoah hasn't. And so I'd like to hope that in that sense it does fit into it. Hmm. That's, a, that's a very powerful teaching that's not only about, um, that, you know, as we, as we go into Yom HaShoah this week, that I think the demand from us is not only to to mourn and to think about the past, but really thinking about what you just said, to um, to examine what our response is, right? What does it mean for us to to live in this moment in the wake of um, uh, in the wake of of, of living in the shadow um, of of the Shoah? Um, you know, as as we we're wrapping up our learning right uh, this week, um, let's let's end with some thoughts on the on the parasha, maybe some. Some, some of our favorite teachings that we can draw from Tazria Mitzvah that we haven't shared yet. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll go first, I'll share one. Um, so I, when I learn about the different laws around ritual purity and impurity in the Torah, and this has to do, like we said, with so many different things, whether it's childbirth or tzarat or menstruation or, or different, um, different things that happen to us in our, in our daily lives, I actually find something really, a really beautiful teaching embedded in it that I think has both psychological existential dimensions and also political dimensions around citizenship and, and the greater good and who, uh, who people are. Uh, and that is the following. I think that if we were to examine some um, ancient ways of thinking about human beings, we would see that in many different cultures and societies, uh, that they develop ways of thinking that thought of certain people as holy and certain people as not holy, certain people as being essentially pure and others as being essentially impure. And often you were born into a state of purity or impurity, and it wasn't necessarily up to you to be able to exit that. So the, the, the labels of purity and impurities weren't about a state of being, they were about being uh, itself, right? About uh, essential categories of, of humans, which again has both psychological implications, but also deep political implications about the way that we, that we treat each other. And I actually find it revolutionary and radical that the Torah presents all of these laws about purity and impurity, but it makes it very clear that human beings are not categorically, you know, impure. Like none of us is categorically impure. Impurity or purity are states that we can, that we enter and that we live. That sometimes we enter them because of, you know, willingly and sometimes not out of any conscious choice. Uh, but, but always we have the ability to, to, become, to become pure again. Uh, so, so I find something really powerful there uh, about what it means to be um, a human being in the eyes of, of the Torah and our tradition. Uh, and, and there's something equalizing there about the worth that we each have and we each bring. 
and about um, our own ability to, to elevate ourselves and come closer to the divine. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Michal. I guess if I was to share one idea on the parasha, the parasha doesn't actually give any reasons as to why a person would contract Sarat. You're left to wonder it. But by far the main of the tradition says that actually this isn't a medical illness. Rather, this is a spiritual malady. And a whole host of reasons are given. But what's interesting is that there are clearly different groups of reasons that are given for the tzarat of a person, of the skin, versus the tzarat of a house. The tzarat of a person, the midrashim give many reasons, but all of them are to do with how we interact with other people. It could be perhaps the most famous one, Lashon Hara, gossip, negative talk. Also significant, arrogance, a sense of one's own importance, but they're all to do with other people. By contrast, Tzarat comes to a house, not because of a problem of how a person interacts with other people, but because they don't interact with other people at all, because of a removal, a seclusion from society. And what's really interesting is that the recommendation of the Torah as to how to improve this situation also varies accordingly. For somebody with tzarat of their skin, they need to leave society, quarantine. They need to separate themselves. They've had a problem of being around people. They need to spend some time by themselves to reflect. But for somebody whose house contracts Sarat, that's no longer a question of are they allowed to be by themselves. Rather, the tikkun, the repair, is they have to spend time with other people. And it seems that, although, of course, I don't really see corona in a spiritual dimension, certainly don't think it's come about on account of that. Nevertheless, this parasha maybe provides some really interesting directions for how we should think about this quarantine which we are all living, about how it has the opportunity away from society to really think perhaps about our relations with those we do live with in our own households and about the sorts of people that we want to be when we can consider that without the noise of all of our regular interactions. I think it's a, it's a powerful um, teaching to, to help us get through even more, more time in quarantine and until we learn to ride again together next week. Looking forward. This has been the Downtown Drash. The Downtown Drash is a podcast of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life, JLIC and the Downtown Minyan. Thank you for listening to our conversation. Please join us to learn Torah next time.